Welcome to Live Well, Be Well with your host, Sarah Ann Macklin. If I can just ask one thing to my new or old listeners, please hit the subscribe button and also share this podcast with friends. It means more than you realize. In this week's episode of Live Well, Be Well, I speak to Dan Murray Serta. Dan is an award-winning entrepreneur who has spoken openly about failure, mental health, mental performance, and how we can cultivate a positive mindset and nutrition to optimize our brain health. Over the period of how long that had been going on, obviously I'd been throwing up. There's probably bile, very acidic, it torn away at the throat. Yeah, my esophagus, and I ended up with what's medically called a pneumomediastinum, which is basically a hole in my throat. I think it is so important to talk about mental health so much because I think you can really experience mental health problems and not admit to yourself or anyone that that's actually a problem. Making sure Dan sets clear boundaries for his productivity and family life are his two key objectives. So I was thrilled when Dan said yes to recording this podcast today because it's the first one he has agreed to do this year. Dan has suffered with burnout to such an extent that he could not leave his bed for two weeks. And for many of us, we struggle with the ever-increasing demands of work, social life and home life, which for some can become paralyzing. Wealth isn't measured in your wallet. It is measured in your calendar because freedom is life's currency and good health is life's power. And we explore exactly this statement in today's episode. Dan, welcome to Live Well Be Well. Thank you for coming, well, firstly, to my house today. My pleasure. Yeah, <laughs> beautiful day. Who wouldn't want to stick a raincoat on and come to Clapham? <laughs> yeah, for reference, it is. It's not a beautiful day, is it? But normally, this would be glowing if it was. It's but... kind of still glowing, in fairness, considering <laughs> considering the actual environment. You know, you've done a pretty good job. Still very bright, nice. Thank you very much. We're all working with our mental health here. Exactly. The greenery, the lightness. The elephants, you know. The elephants. Yeah. That's where I meditate. The kind of Buddhist vibe you've got going on. I exactly. Like yeah. Okay, well, we're going to cascade into this, actually, because you are a real advocate for mental health. You speak openly now a lot about everything that you've gone through personally, such as insomnia and your burnout, depression, bulimia. But I kind of want to rewind it back before you started speaking about it so openly and really get to the depths of who you were growing up as a child, because I know that... You mentioned you speak openly about your father, mm-hmm. who was blind, um, and you had a very special relationship with him, didn't you, growing up? Would you be able to tell me a bit about that? So my parents are both awesome. My father's now passed away. He had a degenerative eye condition called retinitis. And so when I was born, you know, he could, it's one of the big philosophical questions, you know, what is worse to uh, be born with your sight and then lose it later on or never to have had sight at all and be born blind. And I think it's a really great philosophical question that him and I would often discuss and, you know, you don't really know the answer. They're both terrible, of course, but in some respects, it's pretty painful to know the beauty of the world and then to lose that rather than to have always sort of experienced the same understanding of the world. It was a unique relationship. And I think there are obviously people that grow up with a parent that has a disability um, they understand that there's this sort of carer-giver relationship is actually very reciprocal, which is unusual, right? I have a daughter, uh, she's nine months old, you know, it's very much a one-way relationship at the moment of like basically stopping her from killing herself every single <laughs> minute of every single day. She's like on full kamikaze suicide watch at the moment, like give her a second and she will try and eat some poison or jump into any kind of gap she can find headfirst. I'm sort of seeing this sort of experience and understanding that, you know, from the age of five or six, if we were crossing a road, you know, I'd be telling him when we can cross a road and stuff like that. So it was a really nice relationship to sort of grow up with like that. And I think the difficult part for me was not the blindness, actually, because he never really, you know, it sucked for him. And he was, you know, frustrated by it, of course, and had many injuries. But, you know, they would also sometimes be quite slapstick in a way that he would turn them into slapstick anyway. But it was all his other health conditions. So one of the reasons I am really into well-being in general is because, you know, he's from a different generation. And, you know, wellness, as you probably know, I very much believe that wellness is the cure. And prevention, therefore, is the cure. Mm-hmm. And that's not to say that you can, you know, I know you said you had, you know, DJ Fat Tony on and you can still get AIDS and you can still get other things. And, like, you know, you could get cancer and all of these things. You could have the perfect life and get hit by a bus tomorrow. I'm not negating any of, like, the reality of chance. But if 
you have one life, then you should try your best based on the data and understanding we actually have about health and well-being nowadays mm -hmm. to just give yourself an enjoyable life. So I'm, I don't believe in extremes or biohacking personally. I kind of want to enjoy myself, mm -hmm. but enjoy your life. But also, you know, with a glimpse of uh, am I making more positive conscious decisions mm -hmm. than negative ones? And am I thinking long term, not short term? And I've read a lot of self-help books, as they would probably be called. Every self-help book is the same. It's optimized long term over short term. Anyone picking up a new self-help book, that's the twist. Sorry, ruin that for you, but you know, they're all the same. Um, doesn't mean I don't love them. Coming back to like my dad, different generation and just less understanding of, you know, his own responsibility to his own health, especially as systems are starting to fail as he gets older. So one thing kind of triggers another thing, tr triggers another thing, but you know, fundamentally, because of his eyesight, he wasn't someone who could like really exercise. Um, you know, couldn't go out for a run, couldn't go to a gym. So like that stuff was limited. We had a, a treadmill, which, you know, most people would call a running machine, but he called a walking machine, which I think should probably tell you everything you need to know about how he viewed exercise. And yeah, he didn't eat very well. Yeah. You know, he wasn't like, he didn't eat really badly, but he didn't eat well and not too consciously. And so these things compound and I've seen it firsthand. And, you know, it's one of my mum's like regrets. Could I have taken more responsibility over these things? ultimately not her fault at all. Everyone should have their own personal responsibility. If you're mm -hmm. in a relationship with someone else, it's not really their responsibility to make sure you're taking care of yourself, staying healthy, it's yours. Life is a journey, you know, like talking about weight, obviously I've grown up with like this stuff in my mind, watching my dad die, not entirely based on his nutritional choices, but certainly like declining from not caring enough about it. And every emergency diet, which, any good psychologist will tell you they don't work because it's not about a quick fix solution. It's about no. an overall mindset of how you can sustain any choice in life. Yeah. And that's why those things don't work. You know, Atkins and like no carb, all carb. He like, died from a heart attack, funny yeah, enough. Yeah, he did. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I mean, my other favorite one like that is the guy that invented the Segway. You know, the, the things that you sort of stand on and lean forward and they go. Uh, apparently he died. The, the urban myth is that he died like off a cliff on one of those because it couldn't stop. So, you know, that's my other favorite urban legend. The Atkins one's almost definitely true. That one, maybe not. So with my dad, you know, I grew up in this sort of environment of just watching what happens if you don't look after your health. Now, I also grew up fat. Some of that is genetic, totally. But I ultimately, you know, genetics is only ever part of a puzzle. And I do believe like, you know, your own choices are your destiny That's where I've become super interested in psychology, obviously, you know, the pre-existing understanding from Freudian philosophy of like, you are your past, you're fucked, um, versus this new world of positive psychology, uh, where people actually understandably believe that, you know, you can wake up today and make a choice and create a whole new path. And that can actually, in quite a lot of circumstances, outpace your genetic lottery and destination. So with me, um, watching that happen to my dad, you know, I did have these sort of, I would say, insecurities for sure about my weight. And they stayed with me for at least 30 years, I would say. But it wasn't really until I was about 18 that I started to do something about it. With my dad, the, the reality wasn't the blindness that was like necessarily the disability. It was just that everything in your, watching everything in your body fail because of another thing kind of failing and then another thing having to sort of take over. And as a result, I was in and out of hospital with him a lot. So a lot over my childhood that didn't like necessarily affect me in too deep a way, but it certainly helped build up resilience. Mm. Um, and so there's the other side of it, which was I was often told that my dad is going to die, but then he would survive because he was like really tough. And so there's two sides. that's just like quite fun. Like one is that, you know, all the doctors were like this guy again on one side, but then they're also like, reckon this guy's probably gonna, gonna make it. I mean, like no one else does, but like this guy probably will. And he really did yeah. consistently mm. all the way up until the one time he didn't. It was kind of amazing and inspiring to watch someone battle this recovery process. But I think as a child and you grow up and you watch this, you realize like what's way less painful than watching someone fight this like consistent extreme battle in hospital over and over again, is taking more personal responsibility for your health, which is just something my dad didn't do. And that was 100% my background motivation for why I want to work in well-being in general and why I think this stuff is important. But the mental health stuff, actually, the only thing I would say is, you know, the guy just had this impervious mindset. It was just really inspiring. You know, he was really not a victim. 
never felt sorry for himself, never let anyone else feel sorry for themselves, uh, for himself. And he was just someone that you admired. Like everyone loved him because he was like a life and soul of the party, even though he was kind of like in this like disposition. It was just fun. Do you know what I mean? It's just like fun company. I didn't realise the extent to your dad's health conditions. I, I knew that you had a disabled father and he was blind, but my dad wasn't disabled, wasn't blind, but he, I grew up in and out hospital with my father as well. Hmm. Um, and he had basically the same things that your dad had. So hmm. heart attacks, heart failure, cancers recurring, septicemia. Um, yeah, in and out hospital my whole life. And that's why I think there's a weird thing about hospitals that I find very comforting. Yeah. But he also, how you describe your father is, never feel sorry for himself, even when he was having all of his treatments in and out hospital, always laughing. Never, ever was there a dull moment. Mm. And he'd always kind of reference like, I'm going to get through this, obviously. Probably part of his mind maybe didn't feel that he did. You do have this resilience and it's kind of inspiring to see that he also had diabetes. But then I retrained as, as a registered nutritionist and basically kind of moved back home and was like, you're changing your diet. He came off metformin and oh, then wow. he came into remission and now he doesn't have diabetes at all anymore. I still call him and see him on the table. I'm like, what's that? And he's like, just the once. So he's yeah. very much more aware. But as you said, I think when you can see somebody's health decline and you love them, you do want to help them yeah. and share that knowledge. Funny um, side note on metformin. Um, anyone that's had a diabetic parent or knows someone with diabetes will know that metformin is like the thing. But obviously that's also like the number one, you know, drug that is touted as the future of civilization for longevity, which is so interesting. It's so interesting. In so many ways as well, because it's such a safe drug. But I read a stat that it was literally the safest drug that's ever been like given to humans or whatever. There's like no, no side effects, no nothing. But it's still legal without a prescription for diabetes. But I'm very big into the longevity space. And Professor David Sinclair, who wrote the book Lifespan, which is awesome. Yes. Um, you know, he talks so much about metformin and how much evidence there seems to be around metformin. And it does seem a bit of a shame that the, the science is there, the evidence is starting to build up, but it's actually something that can only be used if you have diabetes at the moment so there's this whole like interesting thing anyway the, the interesting part about the metformin story is they're both then talked about in two very different sectors one is to kind of mask what's going on where you're actually not able to have enough receptors to work on glucose regulation so we're basically masking the problem by not looking at the measures that can actually help that like diet and we're just kind of putting a band-aid on and say well let's just give you met more metformin mm. and keep increasing as opposed to actually working in the more preventative side mm. and then you've got the other side where it's trying to optimize life and they're two very different sectors. Sadly, we only work on, not preventative, we work on actually when it gets too far, trying to get people back to good health, yeah. which I just think is the completely wrong way to look at health. It is, yeah. Okay, so, so many things that I want to pick up. And you did mention that you struggled with your weight when you were younger. Yep. How did that affect you? Because I don't think many people talk about that when they're older and actually the long-term effects mm. that that can have on an adolescent when they're growing up. Yeah, so I've reflected on it. I never thought consciously that it was a mental health problem mm. or anything really other than I'm a bit different until two years ago or thereabouts when I was writing a newsletter for Heights and the newsletter was about mental health and eating disorders and I was writing it because I write our weekly newsletter and I was reading the science and I was reading these things and something just triggered in my brain I was like oh wow self-awareness radar just went off that's like all the stuff that I used to do how interesting. You know, I was 33, realizing that I basically, I guess, was giving myself whatever false narratives might be around what the thing actually is. And so to sort of go back to the experience, from about the age of 18, 19, I basically started to be sick after eating. And it's hard because it's not technically bulimia because I never, ever tried to make myself sick. So this is the really weird thing. Uh, so it's just a natural reaction yeah. you're having. Oh, well, I didn't realize that. Right. So our head of nutritional research, Sophie Medlin, who is also like a professional with eating disorders and all sorts, you know, she's like, that's not technically bulimia because that is like forcing yourself. Whereas at some point, my body or my mind just decided that this stuff is not going to stay in me. 
So would you I, just have a natural urge and then be sick? Yeah. So basically what would happen is I, you know, I'd eat a meal. I'd probably overeat is the answer. I mean, I think this might be part of it. So you part know, binging. control, potentially. But then suddenly it'd be too much. And I would, you know, it's not like I'd sit there at a dinner table, look at you in the eyes and vomit out and be like a weirdo. But, you know, <laughs> I sort of like get the feeling and I'd be like, I just go to the bathroom quickly. And then it would just come up naturally at least once a day, I would mm. say. But for years. And actually the downstream consequence of this it goes without saying, so obviously I was losing weight, but grew up fat, so still felt fat, still thought I was fat. So that doesn't really help this whole cycle of anything. So I didn't really want it to stop. And like years later, I'm talking five years later, 23, 24, it's still happening. And um, So by this point, you've been throwing up nearly every day for four to five years. Yeah. Yeah. I've been to the doctor, right? And so I'd said to the doctor, this thing happens. I don't force it, but it does happen. And he's like, you've got terrible acid reflux. That must be the thing, right? And so I was like, okay. So he gave me Lansoprazole and, you know, I took that for a while and it kind of worked, but more to the point of like maybe once every two days. So it was definitely happening less, but it didn't solve any issue. And actually what ended up being quite an interesting consequence was over the period of how long that had been going on, obviously I'd been throwing up. There's probably bile, very acidic. It had torn away at the throat. Your esophagus. Yeah, my esophagus. And I ended up with what's medically called a pneumomediastinum, which is basically a hole in my throat. So That's really serious. Very serious. I was super lucky. I was in London Fields with a bunch of friends, and I basically like had this coughing fit, and that just tore the last little remaining bit in my esophagus. You know, I was feeling kind of like, okay, but a bit weird, but okay. I think you have a really high pain threshold, by the way. Well, I must do, right? Yeah. Kind of like I wasn't. I wasn't in any kind of like. Oh God, I've got a problem. Just uh, for anyone listening to this, the severity of what yeah, you're talking yeah. well, about. Yeah, I mean, every every doctor I've extreme. ever extreme. Yeah, every doctor I've ever uh, spoken to is like, wow, I've never heard of. No, like I that. haven't. But this is literally what happened. So sitting there, we're having a picnic, and my head starts getting big, apparently. And so one of the girls that I was with, luckily, was a doctor who was immediately like, what's going on with your head? And I'm like, I don't know what you mean. And like, your head is huge. And I'm like, as in, am I being arrogant? I thought she was being funny. Are you okay? And so anyway, she was like, this is really not okay. Walked me over to the Royal London Hospital. If you've ever been to that hospital, almost everyone in the waiting area there is basically gang related. It's all knives and guns. Like, it's pretty horrific. So everyone's kind of like in there bleeding with something relatively serious. They took one look at me. They're like, fat guy's next. They just took me straight through. It was kind of a weird situation because obviously, basically what happened was, it was a bit like a sitcom where one specialist comes in and is a bit like, oh my God, looks like a pneumomediastinum. One minute and brings another specialist and he's like, oh my God, a pneumomediastinum. Anyway, there's like comedy. I'm all like conscious and not actually in pain, but like this stuff is just consistently happening. Suddenly I've got like 15 people all around me, all just like staring in wonder at this like thing that I guess they've read about in textbooks, but never seen. Anyway, I... Had a little op on my throat. I was nil by mouth for a week, which was the worst. I love the ever. little op on the throat. Quite a large operation. Yeah. Oh, the worst part was easily the nil by mouth, though, because nil by mouth is no water. Yeah. No water is mental for a week. It's absolutely crazy to explain what it's like to not have water for a week. The food thing you kind of get over quite quickly, maybe after a couple of days. You never really get used to not having water in a day. But after a week, able to go out. And then I had to have speech therapy. So it was actually like during the process of speech therapy and trying to get my voice better. And that's actually why I've got like a relatively croaky voice. Everyone always assumes I smoke or whatever. I don't smoke. I just miss my downstream of speech therapy and all this other stuff. All of this stuff is worth saying all of this experience. None of it ever, ever at the time connected any dots to anything to do with mental health, anything to do with actually having an eating disorder, like any of this stuff, because I was given a lot of like acid reflux stuff and I was actually like having to do quite a lot of speech therapy and all this fancy stuff that was just to get me normal again yeah it ended up kind of petering out I guess from a lot of the behaviors that were being forced on me from the recovery like I say it was multiple years later before I sort of realized oh, that was actually all connected to basically a belief that I was fat and couldn't keep my food in and that's kind of crazy so that newsletter that I was it writing sounds that like was there the first... was a trauma yeah within you and this is the yeah, release it does. yeah it does and mm. you know that newsletter was the first time I ever admitted this like publicly and How did that feel weird but you know what it related to another experience I've had with mental health which was my insomnia which we don't have to talk about now but it was just that I, re I distinctly remember 
the moment. And this is why I think it is so important to talk about mental health so much because I think you can really experience mental health problems and not admit to yourself or anyone that that's actually a problem. And I'm not talking about, you know, having some anxiety, which I think is kind of natural bedfellow of a lot of careers. In my experience with insomnia, I was describing to a friend what my daily life was like. So I was an investor in her company. I was taking her for dinner to see how she is. And, you know, we were talking. She's like, how are you? And I was just explaining my my routine, my life at the moment. You know, I haven't slept for quite some time. I wake up 2 a.m. every single night, do this on repeat. It's really fucking annoying, but, you know, I'm getting through it. She was very much like stopping me in my tracks, being like, well, what have you, what have you done about this? And actually, she was the one who recommended that I go to a, a nutritionist because a doctor or no one had basically suggested that I do anything like that. Um, but she was the one who was like, that's a mental health problem. And I'm like, that's not a mental health problem that I can't sleep. And she was like, well, it definitely is, right? And I'm like, it really isn't. Because story in my mind is like depression, chronic anxiety, all of these things. Those are like mental health problems. But not sleeping didn't feel like one. And she was just really good at basically just talking completely straight to me mm. and just like saying the words back to me and was kind of like, if I was saying this stuff to you, what would you say to me? Basically, I think that's what mansplaining is. I think that's what she did to me. She um, did. Yeah. She said it in a nice basic <laughs> language back for me. But it she really verbalized basically yeah. what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. And it, it really clicked on me. Mm. And I was like, oh, shit. And I think that one moment with her is also why I feel from that moment on why it is so important to talk about this stuff. And it isn't so you can be Mr. Relatable or it isn't so you know, you're trying to spread fear or anything else. It's just to sort of uh, normalize not just behaviors that happen when you might be experiencing this stuff, but also the deep cognitive dissonance that goes and shame. on. And shame. And the stories you tell yourself about what your version of reality is, which could be super different to the facts. So I think mm. this is like what's really important. My version of the story to myself was, I'm actually a very productive entrepreneur. I don't need much sleep. And I get loads of shit done. The facts are, I'm not sleeping. I look like shit. It's not actually going to be like a particularly healthy lifestyle for me and also not sustainable. Mm. So, and also knowing it that, just popping in there, obviously observing your father, not looking after his health, your is in a different way from lack of sleep. You know, we know that shift workers and circadian rhythms mm. are much higher at risk of heart disease, chronic health conditions that we're all dying of today mm. because their body clock's all off whack and as you said you know yes you're an entrepreneur you work really hard you're really passionate but at the detriment of your health yeah. i'd like to take a moment to ask you a question would you like more balance in your life maybe you feel you're fleeting between too many things and spreading yourself too thinly meaning important areas in your life just aren't getting the focus you want because you're rushing around you never really switch off because there's too much going on but wouldn't it be lovely to get to the end of your working week feeling calm, accomplished and happy? Because if one part of your life is out of balance, then it impacts everything. And I'm asking you this because this week's episode is sponsored by the fantastic Victoria Tretis, a professionally trained and certified coach who works with clients who want to feel happier, balanced and more successful. And the reason I would recommend Victoria is because I work with her personally in a different role capacity and she brings a whole load of coaching skills and experience to the role. I'm so thrilled that she is sponsoring this week's episode on burnout because she works with burnout in clients day in, day out. Victoria will donate £100 to Be Well for each sign up for her summer coaching before the end of August 2022. So when you support our sponsor, you also support Be Well. So please click on the link in the show notes to find out more. Because as the host of this podcast, I can honestly recommend from my own personal journey with Victoria, she is worth every single penny. It's worth saying, you know, growing up, my grandmother um, died of Alzheimer's and my uncle is a schizophrenic, like very bad schizophrenic. And so I've got mental health experiences in my family that I'm like super close to and aware mm. of and have seen happen but they're both very extreme mental health conditions very extreme schizophrenia mm. is super duper extreme 
and um, and obviously and Alzheimer's is basically the worst thing I've ever seen. So I always say this my to people. Where, that too. Yeah, I'm saying you know my dad's death, as sad as it was, was nothing like watching my grandma. And they know know that a lack of sleep now, especially REM sleep, rapid eye movement, Mm -hmm. is associated with a higher risk of Alzheimer's disease. For me, again, it's about stories. My stories of mental health in my family were so extreme that they they felt very distant from me. For me to be like, yeah, I've got depression, or yeah, I've got anxiety, or yeah, I've got insomnia, feels a bit like hard to describe, but you know, in in the context of those two extremes, not really things. So Isn't that mad that we all can feel this sense of distance when we talk about ourselves and the mental health condition? Whereas when you're saying that to me, I'm going, oh my gosh, there's so many things that you probably felt quite alone with, but you just accepted. Whereas if I did that to you, as which is your friend did, mm. you would go, there's a lot going on that mm. you need support with and you can get help for that. Yeah, not to genderize here, but it's definitely more of a thing in men as well. Men don't I'm, talk as much. I'm pretty good. The thing is, I'm pretty good at talking. And mm. I, I've actually been super lucky. Like when I started an entrepreneurship first year, so I was 24, first year, I recognized very fast, this shit is lonely and not good for me. One thing I'm really proud of is like, I recognize that mega fast. Uh, I get very classic negative self-talk. I still do. I think most people do. But some of that loneliness and negative self-talk and not being good enough and seeing everyone else hustle around you and all of that stuff, not good for someone like me. Entwined so, with Instagram, social media. And, yeah. yeah. Um, although I'm quite good at like limiting my time there. but That's good. Yeah, yeah. That's um, a big, good boundary. Yeah, yeah. I'm really great at, especially Instagram. I'm very good at like, you know, I'm going to go on for five minutes a day and then goodbye. But because I was sort of aware of my own propensity to go into like little death cycles in my mind, I very quickly made sure that I built up a bit of a community and an open narrative around what's what's hard in my business, what's not going well. You know, you go to networking events and everyone is killing it. Everyone is doing so well. Oh my God, we're all so successful. I was very like from the start, like we're not killing it. Things aren't going well. I'm really struggling. And by doing that, you find like your people. You find one person here, one person there and like willing to be real and all that kind of stuff. So I trained myself super early in this game to be vulnerable, be really open, admit things aren't going well, admit that I need help and admit I need trouble, which is why I think it's even more important to point out I'm still the guy who denied to himself he had depression, anxiety, insomnia or any of these things. So that is like the depth of my cognitive dissonance on reflection that I was like, that's not me. That's not the story I tell myself. That is, it's fundamental one. It's just a self-reflection. It sounds like you've gone through a lot of times of, of self-reflection. I really want to delve into that. One, I think, just firstly, even hearing your story as a man, I know that we reference it as bulimia because you weren't actively making yourself sick, but the struggles that you had with eating and it sounds a bit like a trauma release of facing your know, adversity with being, with being fat when you were a child. All of these things people don't talk about, especially men, and there's so much stigma attached to that. And I think if we can actually be way more open as your story, 33, to mm. sit down and actually go, wait, let me join back my dots from 10 years ago. Then you've got 10 years of all that in between that mm. still work with you trying to understand why it got to such severity that it did. So coming back to that, you ended up becoming a vegan, plant-based diet. You were living more of a plant-based diet at one point, weren't you? And this was the moment when you were suffering with insomnia and chronic anxiety. And your friend obviously reflected back to you what you said about getting up at two o'clock in the morning. So what happened when you went to go see a nutritionist? What was the kind of aha moment? Because I know this had a big lead on to your company today, Heights. Yeah, so... I had no idea that my diet had anything to do with it for the start. So, you know, first and foremost, I am like, as a person, a Mr. Fad, love a fad. Um, absolutely love trying new things. Please um, send them to me because I feel like I spent my life busting fads and yeah. myths. So I love, I love a fad, <laughs> but also, you know, I'm also like, I love testing my mindset. Mm. So I like hard things mm. and I like challenges and I like to just... You know, like I said, I'm pretty easygoing in general, but I also like to know that despite all of that, if I put my mind to something, I can do it no matter how hard it feels. The vegan stuff, it was, you know, I'd watched Cowspiracy, I'd watched like a bunch of things and I was kind of like, you know what, and this is like environmentally. And I think this is actually a really important point. I'm not a nutritionist. Um, I eat generally well, right? Like g- generally well enough, including back then. I wasn't coming at this from a nutrition angle. And also cowspiracy and those things aren't coming from a nutritional angle, really. Bias. They're coming from, uh, but they're also coming from an environmental angle. And I am a hippie. It just triggered me. And, you know, in fairness, my co-founder, Joel, knows exactly how to play me. And I just watched this thing and I was like, Jesus Christ, 
I can't believe, you know, all the, all this gas and all this stuff. And oh my God. And he, and I was like, you know, maybe I'll try like being vegan for a couple of weeks and see how it goes. And he's like, why do it for a couple of weeks? Like, if you're going to do it, just fucking do it. And I was like, all right, mate, I will. Challenge and accepted. That, and, that, and that was that. So it went from one day to the next from being carnivore to vegan. Uh, do not recommend that transition. Uh, yeah, by I was the gonna way. say, that please don't intense. do that. The other side of this is everyone that says that when you go on a vegan diet, you feel amazing. Like after a while, you do feel good, but like, Jesus Christ, my response to eating meat every day, basically my whole life, mm-hmm. and then not at all, was not that I felt amazing. People were like, how do you feel? I was like, grumpy. I want yeah. that steak. I mm-hmm. want that chicken. And now I've not eaten meat for years and years and years now. So like the desire is gone. Is gone. Mm. And it's absolutely fine. But like previously, you eat some chicken in front of me or whatever, and I'm on this transition. I'm like salivating and hating my falafel and hummus. Anyway, but after a while I did feel quite good and so this is kind of the interesting part which is everything you read they tell you take b12 it's the only thing you'll be missing which is bollocks but a lot more you'll be missing a lot more you'll be missing the difficulty and this is my personal experience that i really think is important to share because i do believe there's nothing wrong with doing a plant-based diet if you supplement and you get the right nutritional advice yes exactly and you have the awareness to understand that things are not binary So it isn't just like you get everything you need on a plant-based diet. The answer is, yes, you do, if you work really hard at making sure that you do. In the same way as you can be a carnivore and have a terrible diet. Like, these things are not binary. You're not healthy because you're a carnivore. You're not healthy because you're a vegan. You're healthy because you have some awareness about inputs and outputs and what nutrients your body needs, and you just take the time to understand those things. Because my journey into veganism was environmental, I didn't care or even think twice about the nutritional argument at all so i did the b12 because people tell you the nuance here is i could have got everything i needed if i'd have been eating a shit ton of flaxseed and algae and like all these things i don't eat every day because i'm not a rabbit Mm. so after a while started to not feel so great um you know what actually happened to me with the... And the biggest thing there is that you're saying, omega-3 is quite a big part. And yeah. that's where all of my research went down a rabbit hole because I suffered with dyslexia. Mm. And I've did a lot of research around learning disabilities and looking at omega-3, which is fundamental for our brain health and learning disabilities. But it's I mean, heavy links then, which is in heights, with omega-3 yep. supporting your brain. And unless you're getting it in these longer chain forms like fatty fish and algae, yep. not the shorter chain ones, which come from seeds, because there's not a big conversion rate, you are not feeding your brain correctly. So there is, again, just wanted to kind of give a context to the listener of Correct. what you weren't consuming and maybe where you were seeing it become more extreme. Correct. Two sides to the story that's worth sharing. One is behaviors. So start to get insomnia, basically ignore it as an issue after six months you know it's worth saying i tried a lot of things so two or three months of it no problem it sucks but it is what it is by month three or four you know i start having panic attacks and actually start to have really bad chronic anxiety and like hot sweats and all of these things that are actually quite random um which is the worst part Mm. because you know you don't really want to be in a meeting and have a panic attack you don't want to be on the train and have a panic attack so that was kind of the thing when i was like okay that is like the final straw take myself to the doctor take myself i did sleep therapy i did therapy i tried all of these different things but nothing worked so it's worth saying that for the second half of the six month period i was really testing things right like really like okay i need to actively solve insomnia because i don't believe that i should live like this forever starting to lose belief i'll ever get over it but i still fundamentally in the back of my head i'm aware that like there will be some cause or some reason or something that can help solve this problem for me and so i was doing all of the things that would impact my psychology my mental health as i understood mental health being the mind so i tried all of these different things and nothing worked when i went for dinner with my friend and she was like sounds like a brain health issue and it's not she's not a nutritionist but she happened to have read brain health books fucking niche don't know why but she did thank god she did <laughs> thank god uh, she was like you should read this book which i did but she was like you should go see a dietitian and so i was like well i don't even know what a dietitian is i've heard of a nutritionist but i've never heard of a dietitian and she was like yeah i mean don't tell the dietitian that that's like their number one least favorite thing to hear um, you've never heard of a dietitian yeah yeah because everyone's heard of nutritionists but obviously to diet- an extent but they're very different because there's registered nutritionists that yep. are trained in the same way as a dietitian by yep. chemistry degrees but we just don't work in the hospitals so we work with healthy populations yep. um but you have a lot of unregulated nutritionists but that can you, do like a three-week course but this is kind of the point right which mm. is that you know doctors are your gateway into dietitians 
nutritionists. Yeah. But doctors don't get nutritional training. Sadly, like the reason people tend to find nutritionists is because nutritionists are also quite good at marketing. And, you know, there's lots of private nutritionists and stuff and that social media and awareness and looking mm -hmm. after yourself. But dietitians who work with sick people aren't really necessarily getting the right referrals via the doctors because the doctors don't know that nutrition might be the issue. So in my experience of going through the NHS with this process, no one's addressed a nutritionist, just sleeping pills. So it was my friend who was like a dietitian, go back to your doctor, get a recommendation. Get a referral. Yeah, get a referral. That in itself is, you know, quite telling. So by the time I went to see her, it's worth saying that I was able to already explain to her, it's been six months, I've tried all these things. My friend told me to come here. What do you think? And very quickly, she's able to say, that does sound like you're malnourished. It sounds like you're missing these three major things that I would recommend that you'd supplement immediately. Mm -hmm. Those things were DHA omega-3, blueberry extract, and B vitamin complex. Because I was like, no, no, I do B vitamin, uh, do B12. And she's like, yeah, I mean, it's tip of the iceberg where you're at right now. <laughs> that was really helpful. I was, I was like, why? What are the stories behind these things? And what is, what is the reason what's happening to me? But the main thing that really struck me was this omega-3 story because she was like look it is the main building block of your brain your brain is 90 percent fat 60 percent of that fat is one compound just dha she did a beautiful analogy for me she was like if your brain's a house and you imagine that it's all made of bricks those bricks are basically dha and what you've been doing on your plant-based diet like without any fault of your own or whatever you've been replacing all the dha that you would have previously gotten from fish and you're replacing it with seeds. So you're replacing DHA with ALA. And like, it's not, you know, it's completely- Or pulling other fats like cholesterol into there, which is more rigid structures. Correct. Yeah. So she was like, so now if you imagine this analogy of a house, you've been taking out that brick and you've been putting in polystyrene. Totally fine for a period of time. But after a while, the house starts to crumble. And what your brain is basically saying to you, you're having the physical manifestations of alarm bells ringing that something needs to be done. And the body's very intuitive and very clever. And your brain is literally trying to give you as many warning signs as it possibly could that something is out of balance and you need to do something about it. And so she's like, I feel very confident by hearing what you're saying, very confident that my suggestion is going to work. I think it's really important to caveat here because I am like big on brain care. But what I'm not big on is like, I'm not trying to suggest to anyone ever <laughs> that if you have insomnia or anxiety or depression, take our supplements and they will cure them. That is not the case. Mm. The point that I missed in my whole journey was... There's two functions that might be the case, your mind and your biological brain. There's no harm with trying both approaches. Wish I'd have done that at the start of six months because it would have mm -hmm. worked. I wish I hadn't waited six months and tried all of the other things just on my mind, but she's very able to clearly communicate to me, you know, your brain is a biological organ, inputs, outputs. If you're starving it of the things it needs to thrive, it's going to impact your mind and it's going to manifest itself in your behaviors and your actions and your body. So this is very, very clear and obvious to her that nutrition would be the way to solve it. It might also be the case that, you know, someone's suffering from insomnia and they've got amazing nutrition. I would argue then the problem is with their mind and they should go see mental health therapists and find sleep support and all of the other things. But the point is there's not just one answer. And the thing that really fascinated me was that I consider myself by this point pretty into wellness, mm -hmm. you know? How I old are you? 30. Okay. So it was about five years ago. I read a lot. I follow nutritionists and, you know, and, and scientists and all that stuff. I love this stuff. You know the background with my dad. Mm -hmm. Like, I'd never, ever, 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 ever heard even once this argument about nutrition impact on mental health. Ever. In any space. At all. This was the first time I'd ever heard Have that. you heard of nutritional psychiatry now? I have now, yeah. A whole exploding so, field, which is so totally, important. Totally. But the thing is, it's really obvious once it gets explained to you. And I think the reason why I've become so passionate about sharing the story and also talking to people about this, starting a newsletter and trying to just talk to people about this stuff and build a bit of an audience up just around the topic is because, A, if that is your problem, it works pretty quickly, like really helps fast, which is kind of the thing a lot of people that are suffering are really looking for. Also, because you might not have that problem today. But you might tomorrow. So like, why risk it? Prevention is the cure, right? So why wouldn't you be motivated to give your brain the best chance of success and know that at least it isn't biological nutrition or I'm not getting deficiencies, etc. That's all on the short term stuff. The long term impact of high intake of DHA, omega-3, B vitamins, etc. You know, the research done in Oxford University, actually by a guy called Professor David Smith, all about high supplementation, by the way, supplementation, not um, actual whole food absolutely fascinating in terms of repairing the canopy the parts of the brain that actually start to disappear during alzheimer's 
and his theory as to why those things make such an impact, which is interesting, is because they're, they're the building blocks of the brain. So, you know, they're making sure that you're constantly replenishing your brain is, you know, this is not a fearful thing. It's a fact. We're decaying. Surprise, surprise. Every human is decaying. Mm-hmm. Uh, but your brain starts decaying from the age of 25. It's growing until 25. starts decaying from 25. It's nothing to be fearful for. It's literally just like normal. But this is why I like, make sure that you're slowing the decay as much as possible. That is what wellness is about. When I had this experience, it did spark the opportunity to think about what I want to do next with my life. And it sparked this idea in brain care. And the idea really behind why brain care is because I sort of started off with a newsletter talking about mental health and well-being. And then I was like, brain health and well-being. And basically, there's no snappy way of saying this. And everyone was like, brain health sounds like you've got dementia. Mental health sounds like you've got depression. Yeah, mental illness. That's one right. of the biggest Men- mental health people of hear mine. mental illness. If you've had a mental health problem before, a mental illness of any kind, you're aware and you're interested in that conversation. But most people haven't actually, and it's probably ahead of them. Sadly, at some point, hopefully not, but could well be. And so there's no interest. And brain health sounds way far away, right? That's like, hey, that's just you know, for when I'm 70 plus, I'm worried about brain health. So the message really wasn't resonating. The idea with brain care actually came from the industries I think do this stuff super well. Nail care, skin care, hair care, oral care. These are all spaces, categories set up around this idea that you're decaying, right? Like why skincare? I don't know. Don't want wrinkles when I'm older. Mm. What's going to happen? Like there is no one free from getting wrinkles when they're older. There's Mm. a thing. Mm. But why skincare? Well, slow it down. Make myself look better for longer. Sure, there's some vanity, but beauty is very much a part of mental well-being and self-worth. So like all this stuff like stands to reason. And where those categories have done an amazing job is sort of turn a fearful concept of decay into a daily act, a quick, simple daily act of maintenance and looking after yourself over the long term. There is a reason why our teeth aren't falling out. It's because we're taught as kids to brush our teeth, right? If we didn't brush our teeth, none of us would have teeth. It's that simple. Mm-hmm. Nothing to be scared of. Mm. Just do the basic work. It's like mm-hmm. two minutes in the morning, two minutes at night. Hey, presto, your teeth haven't fallen out, mm-hmm. fallen out by the time you're 30. Mm. Great. Can you create simple behaviors every single day that are scientifically proven to reduce the risks and the risk factors of all of these things? The same way as every single person that's probably been to a dentist before and had a filling or whatever, you may brush your teeth for two minutes in the morning and two minutes in the evening. You still need a filling or whatever. It's not to say these things are impervious, you take the smart supplement, you'll never have a mental health condition again, you never have a bad night's sleep again. No, this is not the case. Scientifically speaking, you will be reducing so many different limiting risk factors. That is what all of these care professions are about. So that was kind of the, the starting point and the motivation for taking a personal experience, which was horrific, and turning it into like actually, I think, quite a meaningful opportunity. And like the challenge really throughout the whole thing has been communication. Because brain care and mental health prevention is not something people are looking for. Like no one, there's no awareness in society about it. That's really the challenge. Like how do you communicate in a way that resonates with people about something they're not currently already fussed over? There's so much shit going on in the world. That's not one thing in their mind already. I love that you've mentioned that because that was my drive behind starting the BY Collective was that we're all around prevention, not cure. And so creating these conversations, reducing these stigmas is one of the ways that we can start young adults talking about Mm. mental health, seeking help. So when you were 18, you might have been more aware to seek help because that behavior wasn't natural. Again, with your insomnia, maybe in the beginning stages after a week, you would have maybe sought more help because you would have heard these conversations. Is there any way that you kind of can foresee why we don't in society? Now you're so passionate about this as I am with prevention. Why we don't seek more preventative help? Why do we always wait to the end and then we have to kind of like take these steps back to getting back to the optimal health that we want to be not even optimal actually just kind of the foundation I think people are getting better about it I think it's like a generational thing and it gets better and better if I speak from personal experience about how I approach life in general for example I'm bad at studying right so tell me that there's an exam that I need to do and these are some books I need to read and I need to learn because that's how I need to pass the exam I'll do it but it's a lot harder for me than for someone else it's just not how I learn Tell me I need to take an exam, see the questions, fail, experience the failure, the shame of failure, the hate of myself for doing it, and come out through the other side and do it again the next time I'll ace the exam. So I'm very much a learn by doing kind of guy. 
Um, I think, you know, the same thing with a lot of experiences, right? It's very hard for you to put yourself in the shoes of someone that's gone through something like that. And even though it's all very painful, I think this is very important for entrepreneurs, but I think it's very important for human beings too, which is building resilience. You can only really build resilience by living through experiences. And we all run away from tough experiences. It is natural to fear a tough experience. No one wants to go through the pain of a parent dying. No one wants to fail stuff. No one wants to be heartbroken. No one wants the, you know, to get dumped. All of these things that are character building. No one wants any of them. They're horrible. Nine times out of ten, you come out um, a wiser, more considerate, more compassionate, more connected person with more insights, more understanding. If you're lucky, you'll also have taken some space to reflect on what you did wrong in any of these situations too and not just blame the other person. The more that you have these opportunities in life to go through tough times, the more resilience you build and the more realistic, I believe, Mm. your experience of the world can actually be. Yeah. So when you say... What is your opinion on, you know, why we don't do prevention and everything else? I think a lot of people just have to experience these things and there isn't necessarily a way through it. And I would in many ways love everyone to avoid, you know, a lot of these extremes. But in reality, I think it's kind of wishful thinking. I think it's part of the human condition. And in some respects, in almost a Darwinian way, right, it actually could be quite a helpful thing because it provides people with a real authentic sense of getting it. It sort of cuts different once you've experienced it and you know that you don't want other people to experience it. But whether or not it's wishful thinking for both of us that everyone can just avoid this stuff, I don't know. I mean, you did really go through to build resilience, though, because as I'm hearing about it, you also experience severe burnout. I think we're all aware of burnout, but your burnout got to such a degree that you actually could not get out of bed. Tell me what happened there. Yeah, I think burnout's the only one that I was aware of as a label, as a thing in the moment. Certainly when I had depression, it took me a while. Six months of depression, in month six, I was like, I'm pretty depressed. I mean, Mm. everyone's telling me I am, and also I'm not great company around everyone else, like, which isn't very me as well. So like, you know, fair enough. Burnout, I was like, okay, I've got burnout. It's pretty bad. (laughs) So we actually acknowledge that's the first one where straight away you knew. Yeah, yeah, big time. I mean, obviously, first couple of days, I thought I was ill, but actually, it was my behaviors that were the thing. So how I got it as well was an interesting lesson, I think, in which has been really helpful for me in self-preservation. So I like, we all have our labels about what we tell ourselves we are and everything else. For me, what's really important to me in life is being seen to be, and therefore being, a helpful person. Helping other people solve problems, being available, being kind, being considerate trying to put other people first, all of this stuff. But I was running a company at the time that was growing very, very, very fast. Gravel. Gravel, yeah. Mm. And I was first time founder of something like that. We were also getting lots of attention, lots of PR, lots of awards, lots of everything. And not really understanding what we were doing because a lot of first time founders don't know what they're doing, especially if they stumble across a runaway hit like that. So I had this thing where... I'd previously offered to anyone that was you know, starting off in entrepreneurship and wanted a, a call or a coffee or whatever. I had this thing. I'm like, no problem. Meet me for coffee. No problem. Meet me for coffee. And I was do, doing that regularly. But then we were hiring a lot and all this stuff. And like my days were just squeezed. So literally got to a point where I didn't want to say no to anyone that was offering, but I was having more and more people asking. And so the only way that I could physically conceive doing that and running my startup was meeting people I, I thought it was a great filter as well, which there is an aspect of. I said, told people to meet me at 6 a.m. in Shoreditch at this cafe that I knew was open at 6 a.m. Basically, for three hours, half an hour slot to meet people between 6 and, and 9 when we started. And I'm not a morning person. So this is worth saying. Like, that was hard for me to get up at 5 a.m. to go and do that. But I was kind of like, a story in my head, like, how successful we are shouldn't be a limiting factor for how much I want to help people. It was two or three months of that. And then just one day, like not very surprising for not a morning person, just couldn't get out of bed. And I was like, okay, fine, fuck it today. Cause it's always a struggle at five. I mean, even now I wouldn't want to try and get out of bed at five, but you know, the point is it's always a struggle, but this time I just couldn't. So I kind of like just, you know, messaged everyone. So I'm like, really sorry. I don't feel well today. have to rearrange. And then like the rest of the day, I just couldn't get out of bed. So I was like, okay, I've kind of hit a wall. 
whatever's going on, I'm a bit tired. I understand that. But, you know, it literally sort of continued into the next day. And then the next day, and basically I had to call in sick to my office and be like, to my co-founder, you know, I just can't come in today. Kind of don't know what's up, but like, can't do shit. I was at emails on my phone and I was looking at these emails and I was, again, hustly kind of guy. This is years ago. And I usually get an email, like, you know, email back and you know, get on a call and all this stuff. I was just lying in bed and like literally barely even turn on the TV, let alone answer emails. And I think it literally on day two, it was like so uncharacteristic of me, like so uncharacteristic. To give you like an idea, before I was an entrepreneur, my dad died just before I started in entrepreneurship. I was working at a company. The day after my dad died, I was like, you know, I was planning to go to the office and they were all like, dude, take a fucking day off. I like work. I enjoy it. It's fine. Passionate. Not, yeah, I'm passionate. Mm. And that's even like working for someone else. I'm still passionate. Mm. I take great pride in enjoying what I do and time spent. For me not to be answering emails or not be able to do a call, I was very quickly like, whoa, what is this feeling? And I think that was just super, super surprising to me. It lasted about seven, eight days. It was a long time for me to not work. Sounds not like my experience of COVID. <laughs> I was just about to say, <laughs> the only other time I ever had this experience, because it was the only time I had burnout properly, mm. the only other time I had this experience, literally took the words out of my mouth, was February 2020, I got COVID, because I'm an early adopter. So I like to get it nice and early. I only um, got it the other week. So really? first oh, time. Yeah. Really? Mm. Oh yeah. Okay. So I had it recently as it well. For the second me. time. Yeah. Um, but I had the first variant full on and I, I had to go to hospital as well. So I was on uh, oxygen tanks and stuff. I was really bad. Oh my gosh. Um, and no one there was like, this is COVID. They're like, you've got a virus. Sure. There's COVID going on in the world, but this, this can't be COVID. It's another virus and I was like do you guys read the news like I know it's anyway March was like officially okay shit is COVID my experience of COVID was identical it was like it was interesting because we'd launched Heights in 2020 January 2020 I got this in February so much work had gone into building it up we just launched no employees just me and my co-founder and I was suddenly like February I can't work dude I'm so sorry can't even like read my emails I just like so drained and it felt like burnout but it wasn't burnout right because this was literally COVID but I was so but you ill probably and... freaked out at that time thinking am I having another burst of burnout well I knew that it was a virus because I had to the oxygen tanks and stuff and I had a terrible cough and no sense of smell and all of the symptoms that are now well known mm. but at the time I didn't but no I was I was ill yeah. It was very different to burnout. Very different. Burnout, I didn't have any physical symptoms of like health. There was no cough, there was no cold, there was none of that. That was like flu and death. <laughs> but it was the only time that I ever felt like the same symptoms. So the, yeah. For anyone that's had intense COVID, um, as it sounds like you did, I, I, very similar apathy or ability to even think or do anything productive, even if it's just an email. If you try and do an email, it might take like half a day and it's just like, it's exactly. worth spending half a day yeah. on that email. Yeah. Exactly the same. Mm. And so I think this kind of comes to a really interesting concept. You tweeted, actually, I'm going to read it out so I get it right. But it's around that your wealth is around the time management that you have. So you you said recently, and I screenshotted this, wealth isn't measured in your wallet. It's measured in your calendar. Freedom is life's currency. Respect your time. Mm. Do you feel now that you acknowledge more when you're getting to that phase where maybe that burnout could be edging more closely towards you? And you maybe take that moment to go, hang on. Yes and no. My definite challenge in general is passion overriding common sense. And I'm quite an energetic person in general as well. So I think that sadly, my energy and passion can definitely mask common sense and logic and reason sometimes. But a very hard ongoing struggle is the ability learning how to say no it gets a bit easier at the point where you get inundated because then it sort of becomes a very obvious like it's not literally practical even if I said yes to everyone this week I still wouldn't have enough minutes in my day and this is you know not just me but it's one of the common things that will happen you know when you grow a social media audience people want more of your time that's a nice thing I can imagine what happens on Instagram and, you know, on Twitter, but like, you know, on LinkedIn, which is a professional network where I do have quite a large following anyway. And I spend, you know, a lot of time sharing how we run our business and all of this stuff very openly. You know, I might have like a hundred DMs a day at least for time. So, you know, then emails and everything else in between. And then also, you know, your friends and friends of friends and friends of friends of friends of friends and all of that stuff. So it becomes a very 
when you get to that level, it's actually quite helpful because it becomes obvious that you can't do that. And so mm. you start to think about ways that you can scale your help and time. And that's something that I've tried to be quite good at over the last couple of years is a lot of people ask the same question. So in an entrepreneurship sense, people kind of want to know a few of the same things. Mm. Often about my podcast, right? So I've got a podcast, Secret Leaders, that's grown very large, very lucky that it's gone so well, but I started early and it was good timing and all this stuff. So everyone has the same questions about podcasts. So I actually got a processor like that I've developed over time, which is written a massive article on how to start, launch, produce, distribute, market, edit, and get sponsorship for a podcast, which has become the UK's number one business podcast. So it's very like specific. Mm-hmm. And I publish everything transparently. This is how much money we made. This is like season per season. This is how we went about that process. This is who we work with links and everything, spreadsheets, you name it. And so when anyone asks me a podcast question, I send them the article because it took me about a day to write and I always update it every year. If you have questions that haven't been answered in here, can you let me know? And I will make sure that they are added to the article. So it's actually become quite a good, like, you know, ongoing source of, I'm pretty confident that any question anyone ever wants to ask me about podcasting can be answered in that article because if it's not, I make sure that it is. And so I go through that process of like making sure I have sort of a master document to still be helpful. So I still tell myself the story of I'm a helpful guy, but You've distributed I don't it in have, different ways. yes, I just don't have time to answer your questions that way. Another thing, as an example, you know, we did a very popular crowdfund at my company Heights. So we did a record breaking one where we raised a million pound in 20 minutes. And so I did the same thing, which is like how to, how to do a record breaking crowdfund in 20 minutes how to raise a million pound in 20 minutes. Not only do I like in the article explain every single thing, here's a spreadsheet that I use. Here's the link of all the different things that I did. Here's a copy and paste version of the spreadsheet, the roadmap, the software, everything. It is actually, please say, super helpful to people. And it's actually used by crowdfunding sites now, which is great. This is kind of the thing with help, like two phrases I can't stand. Can I pick your brains? And for five minutes. A, pick my brains. I don't even know what that means. B, five minutes. No one needs help for five minutes. There's nothing helpful you can do in five minutes. Mm. I'd much rather actually help people by being thorough Mm. and detailed. Mm. And so I guess as I've matured as someone who likes to help people, I've understood that it isn't actually very helpful Mm. to give people five minutes or even half an hour. It's not that helpful. Mm. What is helpful is understanding broadly, what are the questions you always get asked Mm. and how can you systemize real honest responses and answers to these questions so that you can give them back to people. And that's just one of the things that's helpful with the podcast, which I'm sure you feel as well, which is it is an opportunity for you to share things that you understand are helpful because they're, they're what people want answered, but you're doing it in a distributed way. There is only one logical way to do this stuff, which is to find a way to scale the help. And so for me, that's kind of how I've started to understand how to be better with my time. And it's actually, like I said to you, when I walked in here, I get asked to go on podcasts a lot. Sometimes I'm in a period of time when, you know, we're in promotion mode for heights or anything like that. My team are like, please go do them. But like generally speaking, uh, I had a daughter nine months ago. I'm building a remote company on purpose. I want to be a stay at home dad and be around her and just be really present. And I'm really enjoying it all. It's really easy for me to say like my priority is running a startup, which is hard and time consuming and being a dad. So like, do you want to come record a podcast? Super easy question in my head every time. Like, no. Mm. Uh, so it's very, very occasional that I will say yes. And if I say yes, as I said to you, like, I don't mind where I do it. I don't mind any of those things because it's very rare for me to say yes. Mm. And therefore, it's easy for me to feel like, you know, I've, I've made some good conscious decisions. But old me was saying yes to every podcast. And I think that is a depiction of a really good leader in what they do, is that they actually see where their time is best spent their management, their boundaries, and they execute that rather than trying to do everything. And I think that's something with any founder, whether you're co-founding it, whether you're a solo founder, that many people feel that they have to do everything. In the beginning, yes, you do, because you are on your own. Yeah, that is part of the problem. It's it's a mix, isn't it? It's like knowing, and I think to your point there, the thing that's bad in entrepreneurship is this whole hustle culture. At the same time, like no one successful has got there without some sense of hustle. There is balance between the two. And for everyone that hates hustle culture and thinks it's the death of everything, whatever, you have to appreciate, first and foremost, no extreme opinion is good. There is no such thing as hustle culture is just terrible or hustle culture is great. The balance is in the middle and that's really the truth. Very hard push to find successful entrepreneurs and successful businesses that didn't have a whole lot of hustle to get there because 
you got to take rejection. You got to work harder than other people. And actually, nine tenths of the law in success anyway is staying power. So you got to have like that energy to last the course as well.、Mm. So there is a lot of hustle involved.、Mm. It just means you got to kind of. Ebb and flow with the journey, and so、yeah. I think that's kind of it as well. Like, if you're going to hustle a load in the beginning, make sure that you're also then taking a break and calming down a bit in the middle. Otherwise, you're just never going to last the course, so you still won't win. Exactly. I think something that I love about your Secret Leaders podcast and also your newsletter is you speak really openly about the times when you have failed or maybe the targets you haven't met. And I think that's something that even you and I, when we came in here, I kind of mentioned about things that I'm working on at the moment that I'm finding really tough.、Mm. And I just don't think that many people are that honest and open about these types of struggles. And we look at people that are already at the top and just think, oh, I've had such an easy journey, but not looked at the ten years previous of getting there. How important is that conversation? Because you do it really well, and I. Especially love your solo episodes that you've started doing, where the、mm. podcast and、um, team that you're working with are interviewing you、yeah. and asking you to meet your targets. One, I just feel, oh my gosh, you're under pressure to make sure that by the time you record that podcast,、yeah. you have met those targets. So、mm. it's one and added pressure on you. Why do you think so many more people don't talk about this and don't share their struggles? There's a very sensible reason,、mm. which is confidence in the market. So a startup like mine. Um, requires funding, requires investment, and so that is a game of confidence, right? And don't get me wrong, investors aren't stupid, and they've got lots of like you know lo- lots of their own opinions and insights. But it's not exactly a great look to be talking about how things aren't working and aren't going well and everything else. If you're an investor, you're just like this guy's fucking failure, basically, right? It's not safe. But can I also say,、mm. when you do acknowledge what doesn't work,、mm. you can act quicker to change that. Yeah. Whereas if you keep your head buried, it will just get worse. Yeah, but there's two things, right? So one is being realistic,、mm. so knowing it's not working and doing something about it. The other is telling the world about it.、And、that is very different. Yeah, and that's <laughs> what I'm saying. Like every every single entrepreneur is aware that things aren't going on well in their business, and they have these problems and stuff. And they might tell one or two friends.、Mm. What's different about me is I tell everyone. I have a relationship with my business partner, which is you know I really respect him for this. This this is not his vibe. He's very private. Um, he doesn't do social media at all, really. Like you know, I, I force him to do LinkedIn, and he just about does it. He's just a private guy, and he loves challenges. He loves business. He loves solving problems and stuff. Doesn't like this kind of stuff. But before we started, I was like, listen, I I really would like to lean into this idea of building our company in public. He's like, cool, whatever you want to do, Dan. And I no no, I don't think you understand. I I want us to like literally talk about the good, the bad, the ugly about our business. As it happens,、mm. not narrative, not like every six months reflect back and you know pick out the good and bad moments after they've been solved or whatever. I'm literally talking about week by week in the moment what's going on, the problems, etc. Then he starts to realize, okay, I'm not sure I'm that comfortable with this. But in fairness to him, did just say do it and let's hope for the best. And you know I've got a lot of. Respect, kind of like an awkward word, but I guess a lot of appreciation from a lot、mm. of people about how we've built heights because it hasn't been up and to the right the whole time, and I have literally week by week, month by month, revenue down, can't hire the right people, retention's actually a lot worse than it was before, runway is shorter, you know, like actually these are our real problems. Um, there was a period from July, we literally it was terribly ironic. We did a funding round. Which went really well, and like pretty much from that moment till January, just literally couldn't have a good month. Went through like literally six months of, okay, this is where building in public sucks. It's all fun and games when things are going well, and you can talk about growth and more revenue and new customers and all this awesome stuff. But actually, in the moments where you are categorically not doing well. Fucking horrible! Knowing that you have to go on. Oh shit! It's my time to post on Twitter and LinkedIn again this week about how it's not going well. Oh well, hopefully it'll go better next month, and then it's not. You know that was hard. But the reason I do that is because I think it's just so important. Because actually, that is most people's reality in business.、Most、oh, it is. Every and I can、week. relate to what you just said. Right. So this is what is actually happening inside、mm. everyone's business. It's just that no one is talking about it. So. I think it's like a confidence thing, right? It's not just confidence in myself, but it's understanding that the bigger picture of building brain care is important.、Mm. It's a unique way to get the message out, and also hopefully it helps. One of our values as a company is build trust and be trusting.、Mm. So there is so much skepticism as there should be in supplements in general. Our number one job and value is to make sure that we reduce 
all of that like mistrust mm. by building a transparent company how transparent can you be talking about how it's not going well so, you know, all of these things kind of come down from our values and how we want to build a company, how we want to employ people as well, right? Like people want to come work for a boss who like, frankly, isn't talking shit. Yeah. Is actually going to talk about like, this is good, this is bad, this is how things are, how are we going to solve them, how are we going to do them? So I'm not saying that it is a winning strategy, but in terms of like how we've been able to do it and stuff, it's a process. And I think that's actually part of it. It's committing. It's saying, this is how I'm going to build the company, which is super different to... You know, I woke up on the right side of bed today, so I'm going to do that on LinkedIn. It's like I'm not leaving anything to chance that I'm in a mood to embarrassingly share that things aren't going well because no one's ever in that mood, right, realistically. But it's but hard if, sometimes to share that to yourself, exactly. let alone to the world. Exactly, but if you've made a public commitment and that's what you're doing, that's what you're doing. It's part of how you build the company, so warts and all, and that's how we do it. And we publish everything. We publish our our investor updates. We publish our figures. We publish everything, and it is super interesting process to do. I think that authenticity and honesty and everything around that is really inspiring, but also relatable. And I think the crux of so much of connection or when you're building something on your own is understanding. I mean, they kind of entwine, doesn't it? Your entrepreneurship and mental health. It's all about humanization, connection, honesty, authenticity. These things actually do build, mm. in my mind, longevity anyway as well, um, both for a company, but also for your mental health. Because if you can be honest and open and talk and discuss these things, such as failures, and I think failures, people really struggle mm. to um, to talk about yep. for the reason that they feel they've maybe failed themselves than other people. But I think failure is something that many of us are still trying to come to terms with with speaking openly because everyone thinks that, and maybe this is my journey personally, but that you should always have success and yep. We never really hear about the success. We never hear about the failures. So leading on to it, my last question, which I ask every guest on this podcast, um, and I'm really interested to hear your answer on this, is what does live well, be well mean to you? If you can sum it up. Yeah, I live well, be well to me means everything in moderation. So nothing in extremes. I've done biohacking. I've done measuring everything by the gram. I've done being as perfect as I possibly can be and X, Y, and Z. And ultimately, every time I've done that, I've just sacrificed something else about myself. So I think, you know, like fun, like just going out and not eating from Tupperware, just enjoying food in a restaurant. And, you know, the times when I literally did that for quite a period. For me, live well, be well, fundamentally, is about understanding longevity, most importantly, which is a function of your happiness, your health, how much you enjoy your time here on earth, and are you basically making more good conscious choices than bad choices? I would 100% agree with all of those things. <laughs> you have to. I'm here. I can hear it. That's true. Yeah. I might edit out. Yeah, the exactly. End. In the edit, you'll be like, no, it's <laughs> this guy has no idea. Thank you so much for coming on and showing all your insight as well um, into living and being well. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Live Well, Be Well. All the information covered in today's podcast with important links is in today's show notes. And if you haven't yet, please do hit the subscribe button and do share this with friends, family, co-workers, whoever you love, please share this podcast. It means more than you realize. And until next week, I hope you all live well and be well. If you love this podcast, I would really urge you to support us on Patreon. Our Patreon community really do help keep this podcast going. And alongside being within the community, you can also get exclusive access to early release podcasts and specific Q&As with me on topics that you want to hear. Being a Patreon member of this podcast does really help keep the support going because it's not easy to deliver this every week without you guys. So thank you so much. And if you haven't yet subscribed, please go to patreon forward slash live well, be well. Become a member and support this podcast.
Before you go, I have something new to tell you about. There's brand new bonus content waiting for you with every new guest I speak to. These are exclusively for my inner circle of Apple subscribers. To listen now, head to the Live Well, Be Well show page on Apple Podcasts, where you can activate your free trial and you can enjoy the podcast without adverts.